Man, thank you, Ron. Uh, good morning, everybody. I am Nick. Uh, I'm the fast family pastor here. Uh, I want to welcome you in-house on the stream and in the, the room down the hall. Uh, and Ron is right. We sent Doug out on sabbatical last week uh, for a couple months, and Eric thought this was a good week to take a, a vacation. And so it's been just the new guy and the rest of the staff, and Ron's right. We didn't burn down the place or buy anything weird. And so that's good. There's no boat sitting out anywhere. But we made it. We made it through. Eric's coming back on Tuesday. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are continuing our Summer in the Psalms series, and Psalms are the songs and prayers of the Hebrew Old Testament. And uh, the title Psalms actually comes from the word uh, hallelujah, same root there. So this is the book of hallelujahs. Um, and Logan did a great job with the vaporwave graphic on that thing. It's got the actual Hebrew on it, and he did a really good job on that. And generally, we read these psalms individually, right? Doug last week preached Psalm 1, did that individually. We memorize them and read them individually like Psalm 23. We remember that, uh, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Kind of popular in culture. It's a good psalm to remember. And reading and preaching the psalms individually is great. Don't stop doing that, but where they really shine is when you read them in order, like they're connected because they are connected. They're not necessarily connected or organized by uh, topic, date, author, or size, like length of psalm, but there is a progression to the psalms. There's a concept that they're built around, kind of like a mixtape. Everybody still knows what a mixtape is? Maybe not. Uh, not like producing rap music and passing it out, but a mixtape where you take songs you like, you put them in an order that you prefer, and you slap those on a little rectangle called a cassette, if we still remember that, or a circle, we like shapes, uh, called a CD, or a playlist, we probably all have playlists, and then you mark it for its intended use, like a road trip playlist, or a work vibes playlist, or a date night playlist, or a worship playlist. We have those. I'm sure some of us guys probably have playlists we don't want anybody else to know about, like the ones with Taylor Swift songs on it. I get it. It's really good music. Or ladies, we probably have some hair band from the 80s sitting on a playlist we got somewhere. No judgment. That's all good. But that's how we do it. Artists, musical artists, do it a little differently. Their albums are put together at a higher level of artist, artistic direction and musical grasp. And uh, they put their songs in order, and it doesn't matter who in the group wrote them, when they wrote them, when they recorded them, or anything like that, but when you get the album, it's in their preferred order. I asked Dan, our resident musical genius, uh, just totally unprompted by the sermon, he, he came up this fresh, I asked him, how does a musical artist actually choose songs to, to put together, and how they go in order? And he said, and I quote, Depends on the album, but usually there's a concept the songs are built around. So I start more general and upbeat and then go more intimate and direct toward the middle and end. You also want some variety in a full-length album. So you want some up, some down, and movement and pace. You want the beginning to be your most broadly appealing content and then get more focused or niche as you move through the songs, which is good wisdom from an artist. It's also nearly exactly how the psalms are put together. 
Like God is a musical and prayer genius, and the Psalms are the songs and, and prayers of the Old Testament, and so they're now the Hebrew worship and praise album. And there's an idea behind it, there's a concept they're built around, there's a progression to it, and they start out much like albums that we know and Dan uh, described. Psalm 1 shows that you are blessed when you soak in God's Word and meditate on it. Dan mentioned it, Doug preached on it last week. It's true. And Psalms 2 is the, kind of the next part of the intro where God as king of the universe has an anointed king that in life and no enemies will ever defeat them, even to the point where they laugh at their enemies. So it's, it starts on a very high note. But from Psalm 3 to 89, we see how this works out in life, where those two really good things come in contact with real people, real life, where we see the successes of staying close to God, and we see uh, how God defeats his enemies, but we also see greater and deeper failures in the Psalms as we progress. We see how the Psalms get more and more dark. We see how there's more and more of a struggle with life and these two very good things, and there's less and less confidence and help until you bottom out in Psalm 88 where there's no confidence there's no declaration of God's goodness or His restorative work. It's all negative. And it ends with the psalmist using word pictures, like being alone, drowning, being destroyed, and essentially dead. And they cry out to God. And it feels like God is casting the psalmist away and not answering. So here is how Psalm 88 ends. This is verses 16 through 18. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Period. That's how it ends. That is super uncomfortable in the Bible. There's no positive turn, no declaration of God's goodness to end it. Life for this psalmist has flatlined. No heartbeat no joy, nobody else is showing up, and God's not answering back. And we might feel like Psalm 88 is us sometimes, that we have experienced the same or similar things, that our life is flatlined. It's at the lowest, it feels like death, nothing is working, there's no heartbeat, there's no joy, and God seems far, and we feel alone. And life in a broken world, corrupted by sin, is like that sometimes. Either from our own sin or somebody else's sin, either past or present, life can be hard, life can be broken, it can feel like death. And we haven't, if we haven't experienced this already, or are experiencing it right now, we will probably get to a point where life isn't the greatest, and we have a rough season, rough years, rough decade, and it'll seem like God is far. But knowing the Psalms are going somewhere, that there's a progression to them, it's like an album, you have to read Psalm 89 after Psalm 88. It's the response to it. And this is where we're going to spend our time today in Psalm 89, and we're going to see. Uh, Psalm 89 shows us that when life is at its lowest, we remember three things. We remember the truth about God, we cling to Jesus, and we proclaim the gospel. It's not a New Testament, it's an Old Testament. Well, we'll get there, stay with me. Let's jump in, turn to 89, Psalm 89, in whatever you got, paper, screen, whatever you got in front of you that will get you there. 
and we'll take a look at it, and we'll go step by step, and we'll just take the first part of Psalms 89, which shows us that when life is at its lowest, we remember the truth about God. Verses 1 through 4 are kind of an intro. 5 through 18 is where it takes us to the truth about God. And he says, the psalmist says, that God is heavenly and powerful. He's the creator, and he has shown that his steadfast love and faithfulness is for his people forever. Check out these verses, 11 through 14. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, their mountains, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm and strong is your hand, high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is the truth about who God is. He's good and he's powerful. He created the universe for even us to exist in it. And then it keeps going how God's strength and his steadfast love, faithfulness, and his goodness is for his people. So look at 15 through 18. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. God doesn't stand out there somewhere with all of his loving goodness and faithfulness and justice and not enter in. He's active among his people. The holy and creator God is part of real life. And we see that the darkness of Psalm 88 is met immediately with the truth about who God is in 89. His light, his strength, his steadfast love and faithfulness. So the darkness never goes unchallenged, even if we don't feel it or necessarily experience it right away. Because the Psalms isn't trying to cover up rough experiences. It's not trying to cover up or manipulate your emotions or tell you to be happy all the time. It's not saying what is bad is good and you need to just get over it. There's no bait and switch. There's no ostrich head in the sand denial of rough times in our life. The psalmist isn't trying to tell us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. What the psalmist is doing is grounding us in the truth of who God is. So when life is at its lowest, we remember the truth about who he is. That no matter what my life looks like, God is still, in fact, still loving, faithful, and just in the universe with his people. He doesn't change. Circumstances, other people, even us, we change. He's like gravity. The constant state of gravity, always pulling stuff back to the earth. There's airplanes, there's birds, there's trampolines. Sure, stuff can get off of the earth sometimes, but eventually it all has to come back down to earth and come into contact with the earth. Jets lose or use up all their fuel, birds get tired, kids fall off of trampolines, it just happens, but everything's got to come back down to the earth sometimes. In the same way, our life, even though it feels broken sometimes, it's raging sometimes, it feels out of this world rough, and we feel out of control, we still have Scripture and a God that never changes, who is still loving and faithful and strong and just. Even if we don't feel it and we cry out to Him and we don't see it, 
The psalmist here didn't see it either. And it made it into the Bible. The Bible is not scared. God is not scared to put something in His book that connects to real life where we don't feel Him, we don't understand what He's doing, and we have a hard, terrible time in our life when it feels like death. It's the lowest point we could get. But we still have the truth about who God is. We still believe that. We still go to it because we're barking up the right tree when we're holding on that truth in the terrible times in life. He didn't change even though our life did. We're still going to the right place, believing the right things. So the first place that Psalm 89 takes us when life is at its lowest, we remember truth about God. He didn't change. The rest of us uh, did. The circumstances did. He is still loving, faithful, and powerful, and we're waiting for things to come back into contact with Him. That's the first part. Second part tells us when life is at its lowest, we cling to Jesus. I realize this is not New Testament again, but stick with me. Here's what the text says in the second part of this psalm, verses 19 through 37. It gives us a picture of a chosen king who would come and fulfill all the promises made to David, where God made a covenant with David that somebody from his lineage, somebody, one of his kids would always be on the throne of God's people, that there would, in fact, be a throne for God's people, and he would have somebody on it. This is how the, the psalm starts, Psalm 89, 19 through 21. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one. And said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. So the people back then would always be looking for a king in the line of David to hold the throne of God's people with goodness and power and to lead them and have their enemies never defeat them. This actually never happened perfectly. While a handful of kings like David and Solomon did a great job and led the kingdom to the heights of its power, still every king, even David and Solomon, failed in one way or another, either partially or completely, and the line gets cut. We lose track of who is supposed to be on the throne. The one kingdom splits into two. North kingdoms gets defeated and taken away. Southern kingdoms gets defeated and taken away, and they go into exile. And so everybody would be asking when they read this psalm, where is the king to come and succeed and to lead and completely fulfill the throne or the promise to David? And for the readers back then, they're still looking for this king. And one problem is that this psalm doesn't give attainable expectations for this king. The way this psalm describes this king is impossibly great and godlike. Like when somebody tells you about their favorite uh, chicken wing place, and it sounds like heaven. Like all the chicken wings come from golden chickens that sing beautifully. They don't cluck, they sing. Where the, the, the sauce, you could just drink it, put it in a cup, pop a straw, and just start drinking it. Where the dry rubs are made with ingredients such as sunshine, glory, and barbecue bliss. That's what they use to put in those things. People describe these things way better than the hole-in-the-wall place that people end up going to. They still might be good, but and it, it sounds like heaven, and it's really not. And sadly, pray to the Lord, there's a chicken wing shortage. We've got to get some chickens back because I'm hungry right now. 
Yes, amen. Uh, this is the way the psalm describes this king, nearly exactly how it describes God in the first part of this psalm. His strength, this king's strength, is mentioned multiple times just like God's strength is mentioned. Psalm 88, 19 again. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I've granted help to the one who is mighty. Same Hebrew word is used of the king and God himself. The first part says that God rules the water, and we get this image of God, creator God, in Genesis 1, over the face of the deep, over the face of the water, splitting the waters, making land show up, making stuff show up. And in Psalm 89, 25, it says to this king, I will set his hand on the sea and the right hand on the, water, on the rivers, displaying some sort of control and, and command of those things. The way that this psalm describes this king it says that he is God's son and the highest of the kings of all the earth, Psalm 89, 26 through 27. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, not in order, but in preeminence because he's the highest of the kings of all the earth. Ultimately, when we read how this psalm describes God in the first part and how it describes the king in the second part, He uses the same ideas and in the same order. We are supposed to see the connections between God and this king. We're supposed to have incredibly high expectations for this person to come, rule, and reign just like God would on the earth. And we're supposed to feel the despair of the people who are writing this as they hope for this amazing king to come and completely fulfill God's promise. But now, this side of the cross, we know what they're really talking about. We know who they're actually really looking for. They're looking for Jesus. We're at the bottom of the Psalms where life is at its worst. We get the truth about who God is. And when our eyes are drawn to a fully God, fully man, fully king, King Jesus. So even in our distress, when life feels ruined, it feels like death, We don't cling to anything else, only Jesus. There's no foolproof five-step plan to get us out of difficult times. There's no promise that I could tell you in the Bible to turn to that'll magically take it all away. There's no verses I could point you to that wouldn't end up pointing straight back to Jesus anyway. We take this whole mess and we go straight to Jesus. Let me illustrate this. What's the first thing you're looking for when life gets rough? When you're sick in the hospital, distressed, life is messed up, we're usually looking, first thing, for a person. When I was a kid, I got this sweet skateboard. I was a 90s kid. I got a sweet skateboard from a friend's garage sale. The first trick I learned was how to fall off the skateboard and get a gnarly uh, hamburger meat elbow. And I got the scar still to prove it. Who is the first thing that I was looking for? I was looking for a parent. Who's the person that showed up? My dad showed up. He heard the blood-curdling screams in the backyard and ran to see what was going on. And he actually destroyed the skateboard, I think. I've never seen it since. It's gone. But who showed up? Dad. A person showed up. Our first call in distress is never usually things, ideas, advice. It's usually a person. And it's the person we cry out for. It's not the band-aids that run and help you. It's not the magical goo of Neosporin that runs to help you. It's not self-help books or good advice, new ideas or strategies to cope 
They don't show up and lead us and help us out. In the worst parts of life, we run to, we cling to, we yell for Jesus, the King of the earth, the loving and faithful, strong God sent to lead us and save us. Nick, how do I cling to Jesus? You soak in everything about the guy. You go to the Gospels where it shows his life and his words. You go to him in prayer and unload on him. You go to him in prayer and you just listen for him when you can't even speak. You go to some verses knowing that they're not magical incantations to make everything better. You go to them knowing they're going to point you to Jesus. You go to worship music that worships him by name. You go to friends that will help you get to Jesus. You go to a gathering of a church like this that's all about Jesus. Don't go to the band-aids in life, the distractions, the numbing agents. We don't find the duct tape of life to make it work just a little bit longer. We don't go to a what, we always go to a who. His name is Jesus. And even though he is fully God, he's also fully man. And he lived on this earth and he's able to knowingly enter the worst parts of our life. He isn't throwing shade from on high and have high and mighty glances down on earth, wondering why we can't figure it out. But instead, he has experienced the worst parts of life himself. The last part of this psalm actually shows us this. The last part of the psalm describes how even a godly chosen anointed king gets rejected and cast off. Look with me to Psalm 89, 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. He's cast off this king. This king has also been defeated, 89, 42 through 43. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. He's defeated by even his enemies. Psalm 2 and this verse right here kind of collide a little bit. His life, this anointed king's life, is cut short, and he is covered with shame. Psalm 89, 44 through 45, you have made his splendor cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth, and you have covered him with shame. The psalmist knows that the earthly kings that they knew experienced this. But friends, God incarnate, the king of the universe, Jesus, knows what it's also like to experience Psalm 88. He knows what it's like to experience this last part of Psalm 89. He knows what it's like to experience life at its lowest. And this is bad news for the psalm's day, and they are left in lament and asking questions, waiting for God. They even ask in Psalm 89, 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, the grave? Thank you, Jesus. We know more of the story. We know Jesus experienced death and came out on the other side of it alive. And this last part of the psalm leads us to know that when life is at its lowest, we believe the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus experienced defeat and rejection of God. His days were cut short on the cross when he took our shame, our sin, our mess, so that those who believe and trust in him could be forgiven and saved from all of that. Jesus rose again three days later so he could put a time limit on all sin and all suffering. Jesus' resurrected life puts an expiration date on death. He calls us to believe it. So that even when our life feels like it's flatlined, there's no heartbeat. 
He can bring us back with His heartbeat. He can lead us with His power from the sin that wrecks us. We can stand with Him and withstand anything that comes against us. And when everything seems broken, relationships work, our emotions, our bleak imagination of the future, He gives us hope that one day, now or in eternity, He's going to make it all okay. The gospel says that Jesus died and rose again, bringing His power, His love, and His faithfulness with Him, and so that comes to bear on our life. This is the plan for dark times. This is the plan for dark times in our life. There is no other plan. This has always been the plan. There's only ever been one plan for the lowest points of life. It's the gospel of Jesus. So that our life might leave a gnarly scar like I got. But we who believe can show up to heaven with those scars, full and complete, just like Jesus' scars. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything's going to be okay. I've said it before, a great pastor, Tim Keller, has said it recently, and the Bible's been saying it for 2,000 years. Jesus rose from the dead. He can give us life. It's all going to end up okay. So that even in our present distresses and our life looking like Psalm 88, where life is ruined, we feel alone, destroyed, the gospel proclaims to us that there is hope now and for eternity. It proclaims to us that Jesus' resurrected life can save us from our sins. It proclaims that King Jesus can come and heal us from any wound, and He can help us and lead us on the way out of Psalm 88. And eventually, He'll return and end all suffering and death forever. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, would you proclaim the gospel to somebody hurting today, this week? Even if they believe it already, that's not what you're doing there. Sometimes we can't proclaim the gospel when our life is full of bad news, and we need somebody from the outside to proclaim the gospel again, fresh to us. Would you do that for somebody this week? Friends, if, if the gospel is making sense to you today for the first time, and you're like, man, I believe that, would you pray with me right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to take our sin and shame, to experience the lowest parts of life. Father, and we pray that we believe this. Help, the, help us to believe the gospel, proclaim it to us in our hearts through the Spirit. Make it make sense to us that you, God, creator of the universe, loving and powerful, sent somebody to save us, that you have a plan, and it's called the gospel. And it comes through Jesus. Father, we believe it. Help us to believe it, even in the lowest points of our life. And thank you, Jesus, for this. In, in his name we pray. Amen.